Our passage this morning comes from Romans 16, starting in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being your children and the gift it is to gather with one another. God, this group of people that you have shown your favor to, bought by the blood of your Son, filled with your Spirit, in process of being prepared for eternity, conformed to the image of your Son. We're thankful, Lord, and we're thankful for those who are a part of this flock that can't be here, and we pray for them. We pray especially for those of our elderly saints and those that are immunocompromised or maybe have children that are immunocompromised who desire to be here uh, but aren't, aren't ready yet and don't need to yet for the sake of their health. We pray for them that they would be encouraged, Lord. They need community and not being able to have it. Would you give them a special measure of grace even this morning, even now? Would you encourage them? Would their faith be strong? Would their love for you be kindled because of your love for them? God, we pray for the many children here and the students that haven't known normal for some time and are likely to not know normal in the fall, that you would be with them, that you would be with their parents, that they would be able to adjust well. Thank you that they do adjust so easily. I pray for the parents to be a strong and steady hand in their life, a measure of consistency and trust. We pray for the fall. We do pray for normal. We're thankful that Southside hasn't been affected in terms of health by COVID-19, and we pray that we could get back to a normal fall soon. God, as we turn to your word, we ask you to bless it like you love to do. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for inspiring it, and thank you for preserving it. And I pray now this morning as we think about it, you would encourage us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Southside. great to see you. This morning we come to the end of Romans. And man, I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for God's word. It is a never-ending fountain of refreshment and wisdom and recalibration in this crooked world. We started on February 24th, 2019. (laughs) The world was different back then, wasn't it? And some of you are like, golly, it's about time. But listen, two of my mentors, two of my preacher heroes, one's John Piper in Minneapolis. He spent eight and a half years in the book of Romans, preaching through the book of Romans. Another preacher hero from London, David Mark Lloyd-Jones, spent 16 years in the book of Romans, and he died in chapter 15. (laughs) So we've actually rushed through this book, believe it or not. Let me read to you a letter, a a quote from Martin Luther about this letter, about this epistle. I read this when we first started the book. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day 
as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I don't know about you, but that's certainly been the case for me. What a rich letter. I'm so thankful to have been able to walk through it. I was telling Brent Casey last night, my plan as a pastor was to do it early on. I'm 37, so do it at 37 and then wait. You know, I told Brent, after I bury you and all that, wait 25 years and then make another run through it. It's been good. Remember the purposes of Romans. It's really to understand the gospel, but not just understand that we might experience the gospel and that we would bring unity in the church around the gospel and then promote the gospel, get the thing out there. And so our text this morning is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Before we look at those verses, I want us to overview where we've been for the last 18 months. So meet me in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Remember the structure of Romans, we've sort of broken up the series with one to three in the sinfulness of sin, and then Romans four to eight, the grace of God and the gospel, and then nine to 11, God's sovereign purpose, and then 12 to the end of the book is really now how we are to respond to the transforming power of the gospel. And we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning, that's why I want you to have your nose in the text reading with me, and it's a good thing to do so. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that we ought to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture so we're going to do that this morning so meet me in Romans 1 verse 1 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, Paul wants us to know what's this going to be about? What's this letter about? Well, fundamentally, it's about the Son. The son who was descended from David, King Jesus, the one who comes for the purpose of bringing about faith for the sake of his name, but not just a bare faith, a faith that changes us. So it's the obedience that flows from faith for the sake of all nations. And again, we kind of forget the significance of that because we're all Gentiles and and we think we deserve the love of God in America. But the fact is, the fact that the gospel went to the Gentiles and didn't just stay with the Jews was revolutionary. And so here the purpose is that this King Jesus would save a group of people who would be obedient, flowing from their faith, from all nations. Just like he had promised Abraham and David. And this good news, this message, this gospel of King Jesus contains the power of God. God has invested Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, has invested his power in a message about this son. Look at Romans 1.16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Why? For, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For, because In it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember what the Bible teaches everywhere. It teaches that God is holy. 
which means he's pure, he's perfect, and he requires perfect righteousness for anyone to dwell in his presence. Well, that's bad news, friends, because that's none of us. None of us are perfectly righteous. And so the good news of the gospel right here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is the thesis verse for Romans. Remember thesis statements from English? You hated them, never got them right. This is the thesis verse. This is what, it, what it's about. In the good news of Jesus Christ, God provides that righteousness. God gives us that right standing that we need, that we cannot attain on our own. The good news of the gospel is that he gives what he demands. And it's the power of God. And that's why the proper response ought to be boldness and not shame. We have a right standing that we could never have our, on our own, but Jesus provides for us, which is why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness footnote when I was searching the lyrics to make sure I had it right on that hymn whatever I copied and pasted said Jesus Christ my righteousness I said get that garbage out of here don't be ashamed of the blood it's blood death that's what it is it's his life that we couldn't live and the death we deserve to die and it was a bloody death and that's our hope my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust even the sweetest frame, but wholly, entirely lean on Jesus' name. This is wonderfully good news. But really, it's only good news to those who understand the bad news. The diamond shines brightest against the backdrop of that black velvet cloth, doesn't it? And that's why Paul starts the way he does in Romans. That's why he takes three chapters to talk about the sinfulness of sin, right? They're starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And then he shows in Romans 1 that all Gentiles are sinful. And then, you know, just in case the Jewish people thought, you know what? Yeah, they are pretty sinful. I'm glad I'm not like them. He flips the script on them. He turns the, turns the gun their own way in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And he talks about the sinfulness of the Jews in chapter 2. And then chapter 3, he goes to sum it up and says, you know what? Everybody, all of them, all humanity is utterly depraved in heart and in mind and in our will. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's the whole world, are under sin. Notice it's not just commit sin. They're under sin. They're under the power of sin. Power, sin is this power that enslaves us. As it is written, and he wants us to know, this isn't new, it's always been this way, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one listen to this imagery their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known and here's a summary here's the here's the bottom line of humanity apart from christ there is no fear of god before their eyes now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Friend, this is the bad news. This is that black velvet cloth. It's that none is righteous. No one does good. All of us are centered in on the self. We've all gone astray. We don't fear the Lord. We can't be justified by our own. He says, no one, no human being will be justified. That is declared in the right. That's that righteousness that we need. And he says, no one will gain that righteousness by their own moral performance. It's a dead end road. On your own, we are hopeless, helpless, doomed, and damned. Praise God, that's not the end of the story. Look at the next verse. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We don't gain it by the law, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared in the right, not by our own works, but by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is this big glorious Bible word and it means a sacrifice that averts wrath a sacrifice that turns away wrath Romans 118 what's the fundamental problem of humanity it's that because of our sin the wrath of God is upon us got a lot of other problems in this world that's our biggest one the good news of the gospel God has put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God absorbs it on our behalf in our place condemned he stood look at chapter 4 verse 4 now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There it is again. God's pounding in the book of Romans. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter. You cannot do it on your own, friends. And notice, those who try to work, they don't receive a gift. The one who receives the gift, those who believe. You've got to receive it. You've got to come to the end of yourself and say, I can't get there. I need some help. And notice, God doesn't justify the godly. He doesn't come for those who think they have it all together. He justifies the ungodly. Look across the page of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, God doesn't come for the strong. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He doesn't come for the righteous. He comes for the unrighteous. He doesn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Once hostile because of the blood of Jesus, we have peace with God. Once enemies because of Jesus Christ, now reconciled and friends. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? Many of us do. And when we do, what's the solution? It's right here in these verses. It's to look to Christ. It's to look to the cross. God shows his love for us and that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. This is why the church is sung. Listen to the lyrics of this old hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Hallelujah, oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Reconciled, justified by grace as a gift, not to be earned, to be received. And then he goes in chapter 5, verse 12, and shows how Adam, who brought misery and ruin and destruction, is a type of the one who would come, Romans 5, 14. Jesus, as we just saying, is the true and better Adam. He's the last Adam who reverses the curse. And then in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7, he shows us that the power of the gospel frees us from the power of sin and death. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. So he tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because we're, we're united to Jesus Christ. Then comes Romans 8.1. There 
is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I wonder if you lay your head on your pillow at night believing that truth. The enemy would have it otherwise. The enemy would have you racked with insecurity and anxiety, guilt. But through the gospel, we have clean consciences. Guilt has been paid for. No condemnation. We go to this gospel as our own hearts and as the enemy throws darts our way. No condemnation if we've trusted Christ. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne. Bold I approach and claim the crown through Christ my own. If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation for you. Believe it. Rejoice in it. Rest in it. Though you were a child of wrath and went your own way and deserved nothing but condemnation, you have now been made a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In spite of our sin, because of Christ, God loves us as his own children. Those of you who have kids, you know that there's, that's a love like no other, right? You know, if, if you're about to have a kid or when you've had your first kid, you'll have a lot of people say, you know, the first time you see or hold your own, your own child, there's no experience like it. And I remember being told that many, many times uh, as we were newlyweds and I, you know, okay, great. Yeah, I can't wait. I haven't experienced, I believe you. And then, you know, you hold the baby, right? And like your heart floods with these emotions you just never even knew you had. God feels that way about you right now. doesn't matter how bad your day's been, how bad your week's been. His heart is flooded with love for you. You're his child. How often do we think God thinks of us as like some unwanted redheaded stepchild always annoyed with his friends? That's the enemy, not, not the gospel. We love our kids in a unique way, a special way. Like God's just wired, especially you mamas, in a special way so that for somehow even a kid's puke getting on you is not even gross. I mean, it's gross. It's just, it's, it is gross. I remember when I, we first had Josiah, so it's all we had. He might have been a year, year and a half. And we lived in Houston. Alicia would work two or three night shifts uh, at night nursing. And so she had gone. It was July 4th. So we ate all the junk, you know, like your sausage and your cheese and, and all that stuff you do on the 4th. 
And uh, in Houston, we kind of lived in the hood, so I don't know if it was legal or not. But, man, there were people everywhere in our neighborhood throwing, doing fireworks. I mean, there was an entire show right there in our neighborhood. So I take him out to show him. You know, again, Alicia's already gone. He just starts freaking out. He had never seen them before. It's, it was loud. It was all over the place, you know, and you didn't know where they were coming from. So he starts flipping out. He, he gets scared, and I'm trying to, like, you know, win him through it. Right, we can do this, and it just doesn't work. I lost. He got so scared, he puked all over me. And it was, I mean, it was record-level chunks. Sausage, I mean, sausage is bad enough going down. And so I take him in, and, you know, I'm like, oh, goodness, here we go. And I go in the door. We had this guest bathroom we never used, and I, I put him in. He's, he's freaking out. He's covered in his own puke. I'm covered. I've got a picture I was going to show you, but it's so bad I didn't want to, I wanted to spare you. So I go to turn it on in the, uh, in the guest bathroom. Well, whoever was there before left the shower on. So I turn it on. He's there ready, and we're going to warm up the water. Well, no, he just gets doused with cold water. If he could speak, he would say, Daddy, never again. Mama's staying home. Quit the, quit the job, Mama. <laughs> but listen, that was gross. But listen, when someone else's kid pukes on you, uh-uh, I'm out. I'm out. It's different. We love our children in a unique way. Our, our heart bursts when we hear the giggles of our children in a different way than when we hear the giggles of other children. We'll care for other children, but it's just different with your own child. And God loves you as his own. I remember... In elementary school, we had this uh, PE teacher that we all feared and, uh, and were fairly hostile to. And he was one of those guys, it was elementary, and he just wanted to win everything. Maybe you've had a similar elementary PE teacher. It seems like a fairly common story. Now that I have kids, I confess it is a little bit gratifying to dunk on little children. But he would just win at everything. And back in the day when you could play dodgeball, do you remember those days? I mean, he had to dominate dodgeball, and he had this classic move that he would use the first few weeks of school where he would have the ball rack here, and no one knew it, and the other ball, and he'll you know, throw it in the air. What does every third grader do? And he's got his other one right here. Just He would just dominate people. And I remember this kid named Jared got popped right in the glasses, broke his glasses, cut into his skin, <laughs> bleeding down his eyes. Coach is like, got him. <laughs> We feared the man. We were hostile to the guy. But listen, that same man would come home. He would come into his little girls and his little daughters. Daddy, daddy. And they'd grab his legs and they were so thrilled to see him. What was the difference? They were his children. He was their daddy. First John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You know, most languages have a couple of terms for father. They have the more formal type, father, and then the more intimate, daddy. This is the more intimate term here. We cry, Abba, Father. This intimate crying out for care and provision and for perfect love. And God loves to bestow these and more upon his children. He takes care of us. Then in Romans 8, he talks about the fact that we have hope because he's ultimately going to redeem the whole world in chapters 18 to 25. And then look at Romans 8, 28. The grandest promises in all of Scripture. And we know. A lot of things we don't know today. I'm so tired of the phrase in these uncertain times. Here's some certainty. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
For those who are called according to his purpose, we've got to ask what the good is. Well, he tells us it's not health and wealth. He tells us in the next verse, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our good, is that in the good and the bad, however life's going, God's got a plan. God's got a purpose for us, and that purpose is that we might reflect his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, we go from eternity past. He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, we go to eternity future, he also glorified. You know, for all of us, glorification is yet future, not in the mind of God, it's done. What he started, he will finish. It's the golden chain of redemption. Verse 31, what then? Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Can you believe that? The one who's been given all authority on heaven and on earth, the one whom the grave couldn't hold, he is raised. He is at the right hand of God, the supreme place of authority. And did you know that if you're his child, he's praying for you? On your worst day, once you practice this exercise, try to envision the words of Christ on your behalf in the other room. Who indeed is interceding for you. More than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes to chapter 9. Y'all remember that? That was fun. 10 and 11, God's sovereign purpose. Some of the densest sections of scripture we have and the main issue is his God's word failed all these Jewish people were denying Christ take him his blood be upon us give Barabbas what happened here are your promises not are you failing and he takes these three chapters say no God's word has not failed God has not totally cast off Israel but some will continue to be saved as they get jealous of Gentiles coming to faith this mystery that he reveals. And so continue to share the gospel. The gospel's got to continue to go out. God's not done with anybody, Jews, Gentiles. Chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel's got to continue to go forward. And then in chapter 11, he's got the olive tree metaphor to say the same. God's going to continue to save. Let's continue to get to work. And then after 11 chapters of gospel theology, how can he sum things up? Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen and it could have been done 
But he hadn't said anything about what we're supposed to do. It's all been indicative. It's all been what God's done for us in Christ for 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, and only then is he going to start to tell us how we are to respond to God. It's gospel, then law. It's creed, then conduct. It's indicative, then imperative. It's what God has done for us in Christ and then how we are to respond. And we're to respond with all of life worship. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because of all that he's done, we offer all of ourselves on the altar and say, here I am, Lord, use me. And then the rest of chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 are how we are to be a community, the community of Christ. We're exhorted to be a community of humility, using our gifts for one another, an others-focused community filled with genuine love, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, showing honor, zealous for the Lord, serving Him, rejoicing in Hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, meeting the needs of the saints, hospitable, blessing our persecutors, submitting to the governing authorities, loving our neighbors, not judging each other, but accepting each other when it comes to disputable matters, bearing with the failings of the weak. And then in chapter 16, Paul gives a shout out to all of his posse, all of his gospel co-workers. And then we have our text for this morning. And in so many ways, Paul ends how he begins. Romans 16, verse 25. Gospel, nations, obedience, and the power of God. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It says, now to the one who is able. God is able, and he's able to strengthen you. And notice how we are strengthened. We're strengthened according to the gospel. He begins and ends with the power of God again through the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, that though we're sinners, Jesus has died in our place. Romans 1.16, that's the power of God for salvation. Here in Romans 16, it's this gospel that strengthens us. It's why we keep the gospel before you week in and week out in everything we do. And it's why we keep it before your children week in and week out in everything we do, front and center, because it's the gospel that saves and it's the gospel that establishes. It's the gospel that strengthens and it's the gospel that sustains. It converts the lost and it nurtures the most mature believer. That's why Tim Keller says the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to the Z. We don't move past it. We're strengthened by the gospel, and he also says we're strengthened by the preaching of Jesus Christ. Hearing him proclaimed in all of his perfection and in his person and his finished work, this is the means God uses to strengthen his church. That's why we do it every week. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 28. Speaking of Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, with the goal, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
Notice the similarity between that and Romans 16. Romans 16 says it's the preaching of Jesus that strengthens us and sustains us. It establishes us. In Colossians 1, it's the proclamation of Jesus that brings the church to maturity. That's what changes us, seeing Jesus lifted high in lyrics of songs and sermons and Bible and everything. Seeing Jesus in all of his perfection changes us. Use the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are changed from one degree of glory as we behold the glory of the Lord. We behold the Lord and we become like him. That's why we preach for a year and a half through Romans. Rather than an abundance of practical tips and life hacks and seven steps to a better whatever, it's the preaching of Christ and him crucified that shapes and changes the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. God strengthens us through the gospel. He establishes us through the preaching of Jesus. He sets our feet on steady ground. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. And he says this gospel is a mystery, probably not what you think of mystery in terms of the way we speak of novels or movies. A mystery in the Bible, it's a, it's a revelation term. God has revealed himself. It's something that was previously hinted at and hidden, but now made known and revealed with clarity. Look at verse 26. It was kept secret for long ages, this gospel, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God has now revealed the mystery of the gospel. He's made it known and he's disclosed it again. It was hinted at but not fully known. And that's why Paul unpacks the Old Testament again and again and again. So the Old Testament was pointing here. That's why he starts in those very first verses of Romans say that this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And that's why at the end of the very end of the book, he says the same thing. It was made known through the prophetic writings. The Old Testament is a hymn book, H-I-M. It's all about Jesus. Which again is why we try to show you that regularly. That's why we teach your kids with the gospel project. Every story whispers his name. And notice the extent to which this gospel goes. Again, people would have thought it's just Jerusalem. No, all nations, just like he started with in chapter 1, verse 5. All nations, anyone, anywhere, Jews and Gentiles. And the goal is the same. Just like in Romans 1, 5, here in Romans 16, 26, the obedience that flows from faith. God wants our obedience. Look at verse 27. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What a fitting conclusion to the book of Romans. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life our redemption to win, and he opened the life gate that all may go in. We've got a wise God and a wonderful gospel and worshiping Gentiles. There are lots of ways to respond to Romans. In many ways, the last three or four months have been about a way to respond in Romans 12 to 16. But at heart, what is God's goal with Romans or any other letter for that matter? It's worship. It's that we would worship Jesus in all of life. That we would seek to glorify him in everything we do. 
So let's resolve based upon how good, how kind he's been to us. A, to worship in all of life, and B, to worship strong through song, because he's worthy. Let's pray together. Father, I close us here as we close this long series, just filled with gratitude to you. Oh, we've got so much to be grateful for, that you are a God who speaks and preserves your word and tells us about you and tells us about ourselves and tells us about the world. And so we're grateful for how Romans has shaped us in untold ways, some that we see and some that we don't even see. But we trust that your spirit by your words been at work and we're thankful for an accurate self-perception. We're not for your word. We would think we were some very fine people. But your word exposes us and shows us just the depth of our depravity and the desperation of our condition. We're grateful for the gift of the gospel, that you provide what we so desperately need and could not attain on our own. You give us the gift of a right standing, and you don't make us try to earn it. You don't put up some ladder, but you give it as a gift to be received by faith. We stand here with nothing to offer and everything required if we would just look away from ourselves and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit, the down payment of our inheritance who helps us look away from ourselves and look to Christ, who sheds abroad your love in our hearts and who empowers us to live the life you call us to live, who fills us with hope that one day you're going to come back and You're going to make all things right, that the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting on us, a redeemed and renewed world. And thank you for purchasing a community, a countercultural community. And thank you for this one right here before us as we gather that you are shaping and will continue to shape, that you have predestined and you will glorify until then. May we sing strong and may we live sold out lives for the glory of King Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.